All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to uh, the uh, latest episode of the Bitcoin Magazine Happy Hour. I'm your host, Colin Harper, and I'm with Michael, Cassie, and Brandon. Uh, new edition this week, we've got the BitPiggy right here, the BitPiggy swear jar. So anytime anyone uh, curses or... It was here last week, baby. Oh, was it here last week? Okay, yeah. well, I wasn't here last week because I was in Europe, so I, I didn't know that. We All right, you. so did you miss me? Yeah, we Oh, thanks, you. babe. But uh, yeah, so we got the BitPiggy swear jar again. So anytime anyone uh, drops a, a curse word during the show, we're going to donate 100 sats to it. And, uh, you know, uh, once we get to a certain amount of money, we're going to donate it to some charity. I mean, I would like to maybe give it to BTC Venezuela, but that's just me. Um, if you're right, the Sats guy, though, you have to donate 10000 each time. So Yeah, Sats guy, Sats guy, unfortunately, <laughs> not on the show with us today. Uh, he's, he's off camera. But, uh, all right, guys, let's uh, let's pop them open. Let's get started. I need a beer opener. Yeah, can you just bottle open yeah. for favor? Hear this? There you go. Ooh, crisp. What are we sipping on today, y'all? You struggling? I got this Black Abbey Happy. Rose over here. Pretty oh. Good. oh. Created, not made. Foul. Yeah, I just got back from Belgium, so I'm going to sip on this, see how it compares to the actual Belgian beers. Cheers, this Colin. Cheers, bud. Cassie, Brandon. I see what you mean. Oh, yeah. Over the table, cheers. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty shitty uh, oh, clean. Boom. All right, fam. All right, so uh, we've got three topics this week um, in uh, this order. Uh, we are going to go over the uh, updated academic study from Texas University that says that uh, not only was a Bitcoin manipulated in 2017, but it was a single whale behind all of the manipulation. Hold on. So, so it was it me, was, guys. It was a Texas university, not a Texas academic, or was it both? It was a te- so it was, so Texas it was, academic. It was a Texas academic in conjunction with an Ohio State academic. I'm pretty sure that it was like supposed to be... So it's through this... Uh, publishing network but i think uh so yeah, coming a from a university it was, it was still coming it was from yeah. it was griffin was a professor of finance at yeah. uh ut austin yeah. gotcha. so it was yeah. texas Sweet. and ohio state well then you know the study was overrated all right <laughs> oh, Roll tide. Oh, it's pretty good um Roll tide. then uh okay like, calm down and then uh, for our second article we're gonna go uh over one of our latest from one of our uh journalists jesse wilms called Beyond China and North America, The Decentralization of Bitcoin Mining. And then we're going to round out the show with a discussion of Tur Demeester's recent article about the uh, Bitcoin Reformation for Adamant Capital. So, yeah, let's just go ahead and dive right into it, y'all. Uh, we're going to start, like I said, with the, uh, was a lone whale really behind Bitcoin's 2017 bull run? Don't bet on it. And for those of you who don't know, you've probably seen the news uh, two academics, uh, John Griffin from the University of Texas at Austin and Amin Shams, hope I'm going to pronounce their names right, the University of Ohio, uh, or wait, Ohio State University, excuse me, um, published a, uh, a academic report back in July of 2018 called Is Bitcoin Really Untethered? Basically making the accusation that uh, tether, unbacked tethers were used to fuel Bitcoin's 2017 rise. Uh, and in this updated uh, updated academic article, they make the claim that a single entity was behind this uh, alleged manipulation. So uh, one quick interjection on the title of it. Anytime you have an article that asks a question, the answer to that question is almost assuredly no. Like when you title something asking a question, that's literally your way of trying to Bait. allege something without having enough evidence to actually prove it. And so you just like say, well, is it? I don't know. You decide when, like, there's... You so you're basically say. just saying, like, when you're, a- you're they're asking a loaded question, so it's not trustworthy from the start. Well, it's like, uh, uh, you know, 
Trump uh, needs to be indicted on uh, treason. You know, the the, uh, the name of the title or the article is uh, is Trump treasonous? You know, is should he be indicted instead of like Trump should be indicted? Because like Nobody one is a statement and one's a question that you can't really disprove necessarily. It's like from the get go, it just seems like they don't have enough to, to even make the claim. Well, yeah, and like the, uh, uh, basically what they say, and this is, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of everything the article says. I'm not going to really go over its entire methodology because it's very long. It's like 119 pages. Um, not all of that is uh, the actual findings, but uh, it's some of its methodology and data. But basically what they say is like you can see issuance of Tether uh, preceding Bitcoin's price rises after the, bo- after, uh, the price declines a certain amount. Which I think it doesn't take too much of a, uh, it's not too much of a logical leap to say, well, perhaps Tether is being issued because people are buying Tether to buy the dip, which is basically the, I think, the primary kind of uh, counter argument to to the uh, study's findings. Um, that, I'd also add too that the uh, New York Attorney General's office also said that $950 million worth of uh, Tether in the Tether reserves were given to Bitfinex, right? So that was kind of like the... Undisclosed, right. right? Right, and that's a lot of... There's some more background there, too, with uh, the uh, New York Attorney General's Office investigation into Bitfinex following Crypto Capital's um, inability to redeem $850 million worth of customer deposits. Now, Crypto Capital was Bitfinex and Tether's basically de facto banking partner. That's a whole other story, but this is all wrapped up. Um, there's a lot of shady stuff going on with Tether and Bitfinex, a lot of people would say. Um but you know to say that uh, their and you know their entire business propped up the Bitcoin bull market in 2017 is just you know anyone well, so not I mean, enough the, evidence the to entire, substantiate that whatsoever. Well, the entire business like did prop it up, but not in that way. It's like Tether was used to buy Bitcoin up, yes, and it was a good thing. It wasn't the way that they're like the article is framing it, right? So it was Tether that you know helped Bitcoin. Th- run, th- Tether definitely helped, but also you know Tether. You know, I mean, it's definitely a large player in the market, but I think it's still something like I think fifty percent of like on ramps are still fiat for Bitcoin. Like whether it be like euro, pound, dollar, or like some other currency. Um, huh. Interesting. But like that—that's any given trading day, right? I ran the numbers a while back, and it was anywhere from like fifty to forty percent. Yeah. yeah here, here's my question: Is like if it was one dude manipulating the market this whole time, then why did it take like two weeks to set up a Coinbase account? Because there were so many people setting up Coinbase accounts, right? Yeah. It's right. Like, it was only one person, except for this entire swath of millions of people trying to buy Bitcoin in this one short period. Yeah. Um. Al, I think his name is Alistair Milne. Milna, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but that was one of his arguments is like Coinbase at like the peak of the bull run was adding 100,000 people a day. That's crazy. And then uh, Maddie Greenspan, who's an um, who's an analyst at eToro, um, <laughs> also said that during 2017, they were seeing like an absurd number of signups on, on the daily. Um, so until they um uh, hired hal- no until they halted a uh, new user registration because all the exchanges did that like yeah. I think right, right because bef- they yeah because they had to because they were at capacity yeah they just couldn't keep up it was crazy um, but but no yeah it was one person it was one person the whole time like, yeah I totally believe that I mean come on guys like well um, but what's funny though is that like it's not I'm not countering this but it's not like those coinbase people are the ones that use tether to buy it so it's kind of like we're arguing something that isn't even part of that driving factor this is like the retail side that was just along for the ride but 
It's like a parallel example of cover. like how unrealistic that seems, though. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly, and, yeah, and also just if you look at their methodology, they used on-chain data, obviously, to corroborate their findings. Well, not to corroborate, but to basically drive their uh, their findings. And uh, I talked to Nick Carter about this, and uh, again, this doesn't take a genius to point out, but they're using on-chain data, and obviously exchanges use like one wallet or multiple wallet addresses for thousands of users, right? Like it's not like every, it's not like every user has one wallet address associated to their account. They aggregate wallet addresses for individual users into, or, or deposit addresses for individual users into like, you know, either a single address for, you know, let's say a hundred Does users. Coinbase or, reuse addresses? Uh, yeah. I mean, and if they don't, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like they can use, they don't have to use a static address to like have, you know, multiple addresses right. aggregated for, you know what I mean? So, but they use, you know, on-chain data to say, you know, look at all these inflows of Tether to this one address. Well, no shit, it's going to like, maybe, maybe like, you know, ah, God. Oh, oh guys. <laughs> oh. <laughs> swear jars, swear You almost followed that with a second customer. But yeah, to, to finish your thought <laughs> here, like, yeah, of course, you know, if you see one big address that has a lot of Tether in it and is moving, uh, uh, you know, when it changes, the market moves too. Yeah, it's probably a good, safe bet that that address is uh, uh, an exchange that's got a whole bunch of different accounts linked to it. And it was probably even Bitfinex that yeah. owned the address. Right. Because, like, of so, course it was. So in Nick's words, he says, I think, to, to and I quote from the article, he says, uh, I think the clustering and on-chain angle is quite weak. The fact that a significant amount of value flowed through a single on-chain account does not really mean much. There are plenty of omnibus accounts for exchanges and market makers which map a small cluster of addresses. There's nothing sinister in that. So, you know, there's some flaws in methodology, and even without those flaws, I mean, I think one of the common arguments was, like, someone who's making this claim, obviously, is not really a part of the Bitcoin industry and doesn't really know, like, was not around for the kind of, like, mania in 2017 are really seeing all of the interest that we were getting from all segments of the population right yeah and also you know we're beating a dead horse here but like uh if you were manipulating the market like as a single entity you, would you really use one address to do it by like you're not even going to try and mask the idea that you're, you're manipulating the market like yeah. if you're that smart to figure out how to print tether in a way thought, that's yeah. not going to affect the market and like all of this uh, but you forget to like you know diversify what address wallet address you're using. Like, come Someone on. Someone that knew what they were doing probably doesn't use the same address in any given situation. Yeah, yeah. right. So speaking of um, so going back to that idea that uh, you know, people who usually make these claims are probably not from within the industry. I mean, you always see like so Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal were the say. first to yeah the first to jump on this. Um, and the mainstream media always seems to love to jump on these stories because they get clicks, you know, and they, they, they sell uh, they sell ad revenue through these things. Um, I think it really, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, us coming from like a Bitcoin media company, it's kind of an interesting exercise whenever a story like this comes out because it feels like the mainstream media says one thing and then, you know, the next day or throughout the next week, media in the Bitcoin industry kind of picks up the pieces, you know, and does clean up and damage controls. Like, you guys really are not evaluating all the here. Yeah, there's only one yeah. side of the story that's being shared there. Yeah, it was funny too. The uh, I was listening to the Wall Street Journal podcast about this. Like Bitcoin uh, comes untethered, I think is what it's called. Um, but the very last like 30 seconds to one minute of the the podcast, it's like you know the Bitcoin junkies like they're really not affected by this at all. Like it, you know they're it's not going to change the way that they think about Bitcoin. But like it's you know the average consumer, it's an emotional appeal to the average consumer because then they go on to say, um, but like the people that this really hurts are the people who take money out of their own bank accounts and. and 
and put it into Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, that's what everyone in the Bitcoin space yeah. is doing. So I don't really understand that argument. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Did they, um, use, did they actually use the term Bitcoin junkies? Yes, they literally said Bitcoin junkies. I was like, I think I'm slightly offended by wow. that. But triggered. <laughs> yeah. Color me triggered. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, most mainstream media is treating Bitcoin as a, this is bad, it's stupid, it's wrong, and let's prove it. And, uh, you know, they're just going to keep swinging and missing. And Bitcoin, you know, Honey Badger doesn't care. And this is just like yet another instance of it. Yeah. Um, I think this was actually a quote on uh, Tur's uh, report that he published. But it was something like uh, the basis of fear is ignorance. But I think that's like basically why they're publishing things in such a skewed point of view is that like they're scared of what sort of like economic effects this might have and like also on the individual consumer level, how that might affect the user. Um, So it's, it's really just fear. Um, but and, based and, on ignorance. And on that fear, Colin over here, of course, had a great tweet like a couple days ago, but it's almost like they have to buy into that FUD. Like they have to believe that. Otherwise, how could you still be against Bitcoin or think that it's not, you know, I mean, it depends. I, I'm not sure if the person who wrote the article was a no coin or if they're just totally against Bitcoin, or if they're just trying to point something out, but it, it buys into that whole play, which is like, well, yeah, this is what I've always wondered about, like crypto journalists who aren't like into Bitcoin. Like I've always like, What's like, your motive? What's wild to me because it's like you I'm, literally spend your entire day, like all your days, hating on a thing that you've known about for years. And like Amy Castor is a perfect example of this. She's she's been reporting on Bitcoin since like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, and she says I used to own Bitcoin, but I got tired of my money like being so volatile. And it's like if you had saved the Bitcoin that you bought in twenty fourteen until now, you'd have more money. It's you will eventually logical. be tired of your money I think becoming worthless. The other worthless. thing is like in the same way that like majority of journalists would discount like Wikipedia as a source, I feel like uh, non endemic journalists, at least to the Bitcoin space, uh, really only look to like institutional and like widely recognized uh, sources as legitimate. Mm. And like those that are being published by these like crypto funds or like crypto research institutions, they don't give them the same amount of legitimacy that That's they would point. if they were published from something which like is, a non-endemic which is, which is actually hilarious because they're spending their time citing a, uh, first of all, it's ne- it was not peer-reviewed. I mean, certainly, like, they had certain, some people go over the study, but, like, in terms of, like, scientific peer review, like, the hard sciences go over, um, this paper was not peer-reviewed under that academic rigor, and was also published in a network called the Social Scientist, uh, Social Social uh, Sciences, uh, let me see, where is it? Um, the Social Sciences Research Network, which is basically a network for papers that can get traction and views before they actually get peer-reviewed and get actually published in an actual academic journal. But yet people are, like, citing this as though it's some sort of truth. And it's incredible. It's the same kind of thing that I see sometimes in more uh, leftist communities where people will, like, cite social science papers that are peer-reviewed as some sort of scientific fact. But it's not at all. Definitely Um, not. Social science isn't science, period. Yeah, it's soft science. But anyway... um, we, we've spent, uh, I think, enough time on this topic. A uh, lot's been said about it. Uh, I'd recommend, uh, well, obviously... Colin, we, Colin, talk to me about the decentralization of Bitcoin mining in China and North America. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Good, uh, good segue. That was so smooth. <laughs> so, smooth. I will, uh, so, yeah, so this was an article drummed up by Jesse Wilms, one of our uh, contributing writers, and she basically wanted to look at mining Love operations you, outside of China. Obviously, the... Where, where most uh, the majority of Bitcoin mining is is centralized, and North America, where you have probably the second most in terms of like a um, 
a, a continental uh, concentration of mining. But I think uh, for this is not really exactly my realm of expertise. So I'm gonna pass the pass the rock over here to Bitcoin Cass and see what she has. Yeah, to say expertise about is a strong word. I don't know that I would necessarily use that. Um, don't you have a podcast? <coughs> about the this? Havening pod, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just started a podcast. The first episode is actually live on iTunes. It's called What's Happening. Um, so one of the first. Uh, interviews we'll that I have in on my show in the link. is Ayal Avramovich. He's the CEO at MindVest. Um, but he actually has operations that are in uh, Central Asia rather than in China. Um, although he did look pretty heavily at uh, building his facilities out in China, but it just didn't really make sense uh, from his viewpoint for a number of different reasons. Um, but no, it, it's really interesting. I think there, when you talk about decentralization and mining, there are a couple different areas of decentralization, the first being on the manufacturing level and then the second being on like the physical location of these mining facilities, right? So um, we have seen a trend of like some of the uh, manufacturing operations moving outside. You have What's Miner who's looking, exploring uh, Thailand uh, just because of the, the tariff impact there. And then you have Bitmain who's moved their operations to Malaysia, I think. Um, so that's the first level, but then you also Wait, look at not in China at all anymore. No, their manufacturing operation has been uh, moved to yeah to Malaysia. Is that is Malaysia have like a chip foundry there or like a reason why they would move the manufacturing there? I think just cheap cost of labor. Uh, but other than that, I think it was more of to get around uh, the the tariff laws, import laws in the states. Gotcha. Because um, so that was having a huge impact on. So this is like a, a kind of from the whole trade war then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, we see a trade war thing in yeah. Bitcoin. What do you know? What do you know? Yeah, that's uh, so cool. It's trickling over to that. Yeah, we're, we're like a legit industry. Um, <laughs> w- when you said Central Asia, too, is that like Stan countries? Stan or? countries. Cool. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. Is there good energy sources there at scale? Um, I think Compared it's more like- that there's cheap energy sources there. Um, so like... In China at large, I mean, it really depends on the season, right? Because so much of the um, the power that's produced there is seasonal. So you have these hydro dams that only operate like half of the year. So we're just coming to an end um, for the Sichuan rainy season. So then a lot of these mining operations that are located in that area are actually going to be moved elsewhere or they'll just go offline since the cost of power is going to go up. But like in the rainy season, you can see cost of power as low as like point or like two and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so that gets, that's pretty low. Some that's of the lowest cheap. in that's, the world. That's actually ridiculous that for what, half the year? Cause mm-hmm. the, it's half, yeah, half the year, the electricity costs for basically the entire nation are like, or country are like way higher because of the seasonal changes. That's yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's a super strange space. I mean, I think people, China gets a lot of slack for emissions, right? Like you hear about going to like Shanghai, really any major city in China and like everyone is wearing masks there's like horrible pollution uh but the reality is that like china is leading the world in like renewables like in renewable generation and in like adding additional capacity well yeah but uh uh, i wrote an article about this a while back like the reason why they're leading the world there is because they're building dams uh all the way up their rivers and no one actually lives out there that's like using that power so they're just yeah they're just putting it online and saying look how much renewable energy we're making and like they don't actually use it that's That's why the miners are moving there there. i i looked i've looked for like hours on trying to find like utilization rates of the dams and you really like it's very difficult to find anything i mean i would assume that there at least 50 percent goes unutilized because that's usually the case at most hydro plants and like 
But that's, not anymore? That's or? something that, like, if it didn't make sense for them to do because it is so capital intensive to create, like, to create hydropower, it's like a 10-year project till you see an ROI. And, like, I don't think the Chinese government would allocate the resources in that way if it didn't, if it wasn't going to, at some point in the future, make sense for them. Well, I think it came from some long time ago, uh, like, while we were trying to move towards, you know, greener energy, uh, we put, like, a you know, every country has to do 20% or X amount of, like, renewable energy Yeah, production. but they didn't have to sign that agreement if they didn't yeah, want China, to. Like, I, they, 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 they I think it was a WTO I find thing, it a little so like, in order to be a world that, trade organization. I find it a little far-fetched that China would spend billions of dollars building hydro dams for cheaper energy and just be like, yeah, we're not going to Well, that's other. I mean, you also they, don't they get build... to really choose where rivers are. Like, they just are where they are, right? So, like, even in the States, like, if we wanted to have more hydropower, if it were in an, an unpopulated area where transmission costs would be and, like, efficiencies would be super low to transmit that energy across the entirety of the United States, we probably wouldn't build a dam there. But like the Sichuan region, there are millions of people that live there. I mean, like you said, in, in Chengdu alone, how many people are there? I think we had to fact check that a little bit. Well, it depends bit. on if you look million. at the metropolitan area versus right, the actual we're, city. We're, we're not going to get into this again. <laughs> but, um, but so, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of to the point of the article, right? Like uh, it's a good thing if mining is moving out of China. Yes. Like, the more centralized it is, the more of a central point of failure it is, right? Well, the other thing, too, so I want to reference an article that you wrote a while ago about uh, how um, energy companies should be clamoring for Bitcoin fee- energy markets, mm-hmm. right, for Bitcoin mining energy markets. Governments should be clamoring to subsidize Bitcoin mining operations on their own soil. Totally. Because, you know... Why? 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 I mean, because if okay, if you're if you're talking from a strategic standpoint from the United States, you know, if if Bitcoin ends up becoming, you know, even if it's not a world reserve currency, but let's say even if it captures, you know, the uh, the market cap that uh, gold enjoys, are you going to want uh, a burgeoning world superpower in China to control more than fifty percent of Bitcoin mining? From a, like a geopolitical standpoint, absolutely not. You're going to want to have some of that at home as industry and GDP in I- your home country. I completely agree with that, but I think right now countries are far more concerned with like the internal implications of Bitcoin mining on their country than they are like at the global like macroscopic level. So I think they're more looking at like how many jobs are going to be created if like there's a bit a mining operation here. Like how is it going to help other industries like in in terms of like using maybe like flared gas at, at oil rigs? Um, uh, like Canada is doing this. Like they have certain criteria by which they like judge those like companies that are wanting to come in and build these operations. And also, uh, yeah. They're talking about Steve Barber's upstream mm-hmm. data. Yeah. yeah, he's got a few in, in uh, a few in Texas too. I think that's a really cool use case for those of you who don't know. Uh, upstream data takes these mining rigs and it hooks it up to basically uh, natural gas that is being vented or flared in uh, oil um, in oil drilling sites that otherwise would be wasted, and they're using it to power generators to mine Bitcoin. There's actually a lot more companies out there that are doing that than we re- than we realized too. Super cool. Um, and a lot of them are using like that excess heat generated to like power like especially in Canada like marijuana uh, like groweries or dispensaries or you know grow operations every chemical engineer should be a bitcoin aficionado because bitcoin is the ultimate efficiency plan for every single piece of lost efficiency you can get in a plant i mean it is oh we got too much excess power in this one part of our plant or we got you know steam running through and like we just have to discard it out Let's run it through one more turbine and mine some Bitcoin. Like, let's recoup some of this uh, lost, you know, power. So, uh, you know, shout out to all my chemical engineers out there. But you should love Bitcoin just like I do. Yeah, you, second uh, that. can't tell he majored in chemical engineering, <laughs> in case that wasn't obvious. At the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Not Roll Tide. Uses his uh, degree on a daily basis here at BTC. 
Clearly. And and his spirit for Alabama football, of course. Roll Tide. Uh, All right. Uh, yeah, we're de- so going away from Alabama. Um, is there any, any final thoughts on uh, distributing Bitcoin mining? Anything that we uh, haven't haven't really I, hit on? Um, I don't know. Maybe like just a couple of parting thoughts. I was bullish that Bitmain uh, now has an operation in Texas. I'm very intrigued by it, and I feel like I don't know enough about it, nor is there like enough information out there about it. But, um, I mean, moving from China for them to the States, I think that's a big deal. Yeah, but imagine, though, that Bitmain just becomes the primary player on U.S. soil that it just is a Chinese mining conglomerate. That, that's you know. definitely Are not a good thing, IPO but I also in, think in, that, like, uh, that opens people's eyes to other geographic areas outside of China. And I think that is, like, the, the major benefit that we'll see from that at the, from the mining industry. Yeah, I guess I'm just, like, I'm, I'm hesitant. I don't know. I would like to see Bitmain's kind of... Um, I don't know. I, I would just like to see their dominance in mining kind of shrink or contract rather than expand. Well, yeah, um, they've got a, a monopoly pretty much at like every single like layer of the right, supply chain. That's kind so of that's what I'm co- absolutely concerning. So mining is fascinating. Uh, your podcast we're going to put in the show notes for sure, so people can look at it. It'll be on Bitcoin Magazine's Twitter too. So uh, that's really exciting because mining is so like not well known. But uh, thanks, yeah, thanks Tyberg. No, yeah, I, keeping dude, us on track. I, like I'm personally interested in it so much, so like it's a it's a really big deal for me. I, it's like something that I feel like isn't uh, isn't really covered that much. So yeah, can you tease any other it? people that might be coming on the pod in the near future? Yeah, so uh, the second episode is going to be released next week, and that'll be um, between three of us, uh, myself. Uh, John Quigley, who is a the head of research at Minor Update, they recently hosted that um, event, the Global Mining Leaders Summit in Chengdu, China, um, which is where we met, and then Apolline Blandon, who's with the Cambridge Center of Alternative Finance. Cool, definitely got to check it out. Yeah. All right, guys, and moving on to our final topic of the day: Adamant Capital's recent report by Tur Demeester called the Bitcoin Reformation. Uh, so. Uh, interesting parallel that Tur draws between uh, Bitcoin's rise as a monetary revolution and the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, I hope all of our listeners know what the Protestant Reformation was. If not, quick history lesson. I have no idea what that is. Can Are you, you serious? Really? Did you not yeah. have a, like a, a social the studies Protestant or history Reformation? Class? No, yeah, I'm going to be Luther? honest. I don't give a shit not about MLK, history. You ever heard of like, 95 Theses? Yeah. I mean, Martin educate, Luther, I he clearly will, don't know. We'll cut you some so, slack because you're Jewish, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. that, yeah, that's fair. It. So, <laughs> so basically, Martin Luther um, and... Uh, okay, but actually, I'm, I might be Brandon's eating my, Jewish and he I might be eating my words this, here. So. It, was in, yeah. it was in Frankfurt, Germany, right? Yeah. Like, it was in Frankfurt. Yeah. Okay. So he basically went to a cathedral in Frankfurt and he took what he called the 95 Theses, which was basically his... Uh, like, like a testament? Yeah, kind of like... Well, it was just sort of. It was basically saying, like, here are, like... Here it was are 95 our, things that the Catholic Church was doing wrong. Yes. Right? And basically saying, um, in a modern age back then... Uh, you know, there's no reason for the Catholic Church to have basically a monopoly over over information. And so, like, important context, like, when you went to Mass back then, mm-hmm. the Mass was actually in Latin. So it wasn't in, so that was what we call the Vulgate. It wasn't in the common vernacular of the people. So if you were going to a German uh, service, you it would be in Latin, and you're a fucking German peasant. <clears throat> you're a German peasant, <laughs> so you don't actually know Latin. Like, you barely, you know, like, you can't even read. Gotcha, you, gotcha. You. So, like, you, you can't understand what's being said. And also, you know, they were selling indulgences, which were basically just these relics. Free where, tickets know, to like, heaven. Right, right. Yeah, which were, like, you know. Well, not like, free, oh, but. 
It's like, you know, let's say, like, you know, your your daughter died and you want to ease her time in purgatory. Oh. Then, you know, a, a priest comes by and is like, look at these, these are the bones of Jesus and they were pig bones. And it says, if you uh, if you pray to these and touch these and give me, you know, five five pence or something, then your daughter will have a month less, a uh, month fewer, or a few months fewer time in purgatory. It sounds like shilling a shit coin to me. Buy my coin, scary. these are the perks. <laughs> if you could drop your mic right I, there, that'd I be amazing. Like, <laughs> no, I feel like shit coin is uh, a, like yeah, a legitimized that word, yeah, and that, no, uh-uh, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, That's for a good cause. Okay, shit coin is I'll actually in the cause, But also, that is an actual word, so I feel like. It was in the congressional, yeah, dialect. You know, my quick uh, addition to this conversation, too, is, you know, if we want to really tell the story of Bitcoin, what caused the Protestant Reformation to succeed? It wasn't really uh, nailing the 95 theses to the, the, you know, wall of the church in Frankfurt. It was the printing press that allowed those uh, critiques to be distributed widely. Right. It's not, it's and, not. And, and that's what, and that's what Turr talks about in this report. And he basically says, you know, obviously the analogy here is that the internet and modern computing is the printing press of the 21st century. Yeah. But, uh, uh, one step further though, and this is something that, you know, DB, uh, our CEO and I have talked about a lot is, uh, it's not a coincidence that the printing press and the double entry accounting system were created, uh, almost within the same lifetime, right? Uh, you basically allowed uh, the dissemination of information uh, uh, in like an entirely new and efficient way. And then almost right afterwards, you also allowed the checking of that information. The double uh, uh, entry accounting system basically allowed you to verify some of this information for the first time ever. And that's what opened up global trade. All this happened like almost within a lifetime, right? Like a crazy amount of turnaround. And so in the same way, internet has allowed this dissemination of information globally instantly uh, and within, you know, 20 years of that coming out, we have Bitcoin, this way of basically transacting globally instantly at the same time without needing trusted third parties. So speaking of dissemination of information, I would like to disseminate the information that some of us would need a beer. Uh, beer man, anyone can uh, help <laughs> us out beer. really quick? Good. Uh, I need one. I probably don't need one. But, but he wants one anyway. So <laughs> if you can get three beer man, that would be a uh, clutch. Very clutch. Yeah, give me I'm a, good. Either give me one of these or give me a Corona. Maybe uh, maybe okay. t- maybe take a seat. You know. No. No. Uh, fine. Shout uh, out to Beer Man Graham. <laughs> Teaser he's for our, episode uh, three. Graham comes. He on does the, the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, and he's also man. our like camera and sound guy. He's um, actually just the Beer Man. He actually has nothing else right. to do here. <laughs> back on topic. Back on topic. So, uh, Tur, it, it's a it's about a it's a 19 page long report. About 16 pages of it is actual content, and the rest of it is like kind of like the uh, um, the appendix with you know um, important dates and timelines for the Protestant Reformation. But uh, we're gonna kind of I want to boil down Tur's like some of his uh, like the tenets of his argument here really quickly uh, in the second section or really the first section of it. Um, and the, the first section is a talking about his method and why he wanted to write it. But the second section that really gets into the meat of the article, um, he says uh, there are four preconditions of a reformation. The one is the rent-seeking monopolistic service provider. In this analogy, or in this comparison, the Catholic Church for the Reformation. Uh, for Bitcoin, it's the international monetary and financial system. Number two is technological revolution, catalyst for change, what Brandon was just talking about, things like the printing press, a double-entry bookkeeping. He also talks about the hourglass and scientific research back in the uh, 16th century. For uh, our context in the 20th and 21st century, it's telecommunications, uh, commoditization of computation and data storage, open source software, cryptography, and social media. 
Three is the new economic class, people with something to fight for. Um, the new merchant class, uh, for his example of the Reformation, for Bitcoin, it is the millennial generation. Definitely other generations too, but millennials are big, a driver, big drivers of Bitcoin adoption. Cheers to that, guys. Um, and uh, number four is credible strategies for defense and escape. Uh, this is for this he's talking about. Time during... out real quick. I'm about to dox Michael. I think Michael is technically a Gen Zer. He's not even a millennial. Were you okay, born in 95 or 96? Okay. 96. And I just learned last night. I, I didn't even tell Technically, you this last night. Technically, you might no, be the... It depends f- on like which yeah. research you're the, reading. Yeah. Some people say it's as early as like 94 is Gen Z. So some people call so, me Gen but Z, that's which un- I reject. That's unfortunate that the you're, line between Gen Z and millennial is so right, there. You know, you know what the line so is? So Pew you're, you're, Research you're, Center you're defines millennials born from 1981 to 1996. All right. So hey, here's, here's what I think is the real line between millennials and Gen Z. Michael, do you regularly use TikTok? I do often. That's there yeah. you go. Here's the other question: Do you remember? Also, wait, wait, also, do you remember Vine? If you were 30 years old and you were okay, if you lived you in go. China, you would also answer yes to that question. So I don't really think, or if you were 40 years old in China. All right, but like millennial in America versus Gen Z in America. Gen Zers are TikTokers. Do okay. you remember where you were in nine during 9/11? Uh, yes, but barely. Okay. All right, well, then I think I that's 11. Michael's not that much younger than me. You weren't also. 11. Yeah, I mean, he's like let's three months younger than Michael, Michael, you were not five yet. <laughs> you, during, were you were four or five. Six. I was six. Two thousand. Yeah, oh, just kidding. I no, five. Cassie, we were, uh, we're both millennials or Gen Zers. No, Wait, are you 96 no, too? I'm also 96. All right. Uh, oh, we have two Gen Zers on the podcast, guys. All right. I'm, I'm this, a millennial. This, <laughs> that's youngins? all I'm saying. This is. Don't tell me how I identify. We are really going off script here. For, for, the, for the sake of the argument, I definitely think that we're all in the same category with the internet and our relative age. And let's just blur the line a little and make this conversation. I think, a you, I think you're a millennial, bud. I'm, I'm too thank wise you, you. to be Here's in the, the same uh, uh, class as you. Nice. <laughs> no one asked. <laughs> well. All right. Fourth, credible strategies for defense and escape. He talks about flooding. Uh, water so, line and fortified villages and immigration for the religious wars that uh, were spurred on by the Reformation for uh, 20th and 21st century. He talks about cryptography. Yeah, I just uh, like from a big overview, like on um, what this uh, paper was about and just like how uh, cool papers like this are, especially from Adam and, and Tur, um, he always publishes something that kind of it doesn't really dive into something that's uh, too shocking or uh, it gr- grabs people's attention because it's so uh, contrarian. But he really just kind of backs up claims that a lot of Bitcoiners make with awesome, like really good data. And so, yeah. like, and and for you know, yeah, go ahead. So, so oh, and for this one too, like he does some really incredible research about uh, the Reformation, also about. Uh, he, so, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he's Belgian, I think. So, but so, but he also goes into a lot of uh, research about the Dutch during this period. And the Dutch during this period, they were basically a world superpower at this yeah. point. They had a lot of innovations in banking. He kind of talks about those here. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. And he kind of does uh, goes to those to talk about, uh, you know, certain parallels between how the new banking system of this era kind of took off and how he sees uh, the new banking system in an era of Bitcoin taking off, too. Like, he talks about, he thinks... Uh, this is kind of an era during the Reformation when uh, lending, loans, things of that nature were kind of revolutionized. Mm-hmm. He sees something similar with Bitcoin. I think uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, he sees Bitcoin's killer use cases being savings, uh, underwriting, lending. and lending. Yeah. That was one of the things he outlined here. Yeah, and it's cool because like, so he dives into all that um, really nuanced stuff about like history that we've seen happen before. And then he kind of basically comes out and 
you know, the conclusions from this paper were really interesting because they support, you know, these these uh, claims that basically, you know, Bitcoin's going to take over these uh, parts of the, the world where um, offshore banking has turned into like a piggyback of a, a really uh, sound monetary system, which is unsound in the minds of Bitcoiners like the United States dollar. But offshore banking in that regard um, will turn into Bitcoin banking and stuff like that. Um, part of the paper, one of the conclusions that he said, I'm just pulling off the abstract for to save some time, but that IEOs and those kind of things will be big too. And that's just, you know, a product of Bitcoin being so easy to uh, crowdfund just so many different things. And it might not be on Bitcoin because it's IEOs, but of just course. the entire concept is really fascinating. I mean, if you want to zoom out, Let's zoom think, out, of, think of how much change happened before printing press and double entry accounting and after printing press and double entry accounting. Mm-hmm. I mean, before you had kings, feudal society, uh, like most people were serfs or peasants. Uh, you had a few rulers that enjoyed food day to day and mm-hmm. everyone else was just barely making it. Uh, afterwards, you had global exploration. You had uh, cities forming. You had the, the Enlightenment era. You had the uh, Renaissance even before that. I mean, like... And li- uh, well, like you said, though, it was primarily due to the dissemination of that information because you were able to print stuff so quickly. And the ability to fact check it. The ability to have, like, absolute truth shared around the world. Distribution well, of an accessibility to that, in, like, information that mobilizes populations that wouldn't have I'm not, I'm not even It's the sure same thing the, to, like, liken to the internet. So double entry accounting is what allowed for a stock. You know, you had sure. the first stock companies come out of shipping uh, uh, and, like, exploration companies, like, basically going out saying, hey, I'm going to go uh, sail to XYZ place. You want to invest in me and I'll give you some of the profits. You can't do that without double entry accounting. Yeah, so, but like, hold on. That I opened take the a door step back, to like, global exploration. Just the, the fact checking part, though. I don't know if that's Along necessarily with other, true. Other, uh, other advancements in like navigation, optics, and all that and kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure if like the fact checking part was even a big part of it whatsoever because I, I'm sure today it's a big part because now we have this dissemination of information, such a long phrase, but that plus the fact checking ability because we have the internet for sure but back then i don't know if that was a big part of it It was more the fact that someone who had a thought could print something at you know thousands of whatever it was the way that it it double entry accounting allowed for like checking to trade with uh asia like the so much global trade was able to be done by double entry accounting. I, I think I think I think the important takeaway here is double entry accounting allowed for a revolution in how finance worked. Yeah. And what Tyberg is saying too. You're saying um you guys are saying two different, different things. things. Yeah, like uh the, the printing press revolutionized how we learn and how knowledge is disseminated. Yeah, I think my interpretation is that's true. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's part of yeah. tour, tourist thesis too. Um another thing I want to hit on too that I think is really fascinating. That because um, you know I think a lot of the analogies are pretty sound. Uh, he talks about even going back to like the idea of mantras. You know, like this idea that during the Reformation, you know, you had things like sola fide, which translates to faith alone, and sola scriptura, which is by scripture alone. You know, the idea that you know salvation is not something that the Catholic Church gives you, but is you know uh, in the hands of the actual uh, practitioner of the religion. And we have the same thing with, you know, not your keys, not your coins, you know, uh, and even like Virus and Numerous, you know, um, you know, strength in numbers. Uh, I think that's fascinating. But it goes back to this idea that, you know, um, I think everyone here would agree with this. Like Bitcoin's a dogma. Like it, it's OK. To, it's a cult. 
And but like, sure, a lot of people think use that as like a, a derisive thing and say, um, you know, cult is a pejorative word, no doubt. But um, when you really think about it, I think one of the things that Tur really is hitting on here is that revolutions are not born from timid people. You know, they're born from people with conviction. Uh, they're born from people who have a real stake in things and are willing to fight for something. And I think that's something uh, that's pretty beautiful about this idea of Bitcoin as reformation. Like, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners really do see what they're doing on a uh, higher level. You know, this is a religious fight for us, especially in an era where, you know, I'm speaking for myself here, but religion doesn't carry the same weight as it might have, uh, might used to have. Sure. But, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, I, I still want to tap into this, like, zooming out. Printing press, double entry accounting, literally allowed the formation of, you know, going from kings and serfs to countries. Like, countries united by a similar language. Because how, that's kind of like where Can you explain it, how? Like, just a little bit? Yeah, because uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, you had the ability to disseminate information in a language, right? Like, you know, there were limitations. You didn't have automatic translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to everyone who is, like, your uh, uh, similar person, Right. And so like, you can kind of just start drawing circles around or lines around uh, people who spoke the same language, under, like maybe had the same ethnic background, uh, and could start to unite around like uh, uh, forming economies with each other. Uh, you know, it also came with the Magna Carta. It also came with all these other things. It came with the democratization of violence, the musket. All these kind of things all happened at the same time, right? Not the same time, but relatively the same time. Uh, th- all of these things are happening today. And like Bitcoin's kind of that final piece that hasn't really, you know, is just now starting to come to fruition where you can start thinking about us as forming the global economy, like, uh, of, you know, the interconnected, everyone can buy Bitcoin, everyone is part of the Bitcoin economy. And like, you know, I can't even fathom what that could unlock in terms of creating this next financial system. Sure. It's, it's not countries, it's the world united under the same financial system that is Bitcoin, that all you need is a node to confirm that this is a legitimate transaction that happened. You know, you don't need to check and see if the gold is real or, you know, if it's laced with, uh, uh, you know, nickel or whatever, you know, like there is so much trust minimization that happens with Bitcoin that this is the thing that like brings us to an unfathomable like civilization. I mean, it's it's what allows probably even for us to go uh, live amongst the stars. If you I, want to go. I don't think I don't think Bitcoin advances space exploration. I think that's a Bitcoin fixes this fallacy. It's it's definitely a tool for uh, communication between like two different mediums that are far away from each other because it has nothing to do with any like native um, kind of data. It's something that is uh, universal. It's just simple. Tell math me, and but tell me how Bitcoin fixes the problem of number one, getting to Mars, number two, survive, surviving it does, it, gamma rays. It doesn't whatsoever. It, it's something that enhances it. So that's what I mean. It's like when we go to Mars, how are you going to, are you going to send us dollars, uh, over the internet or You're over radio? No. It's a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. It's just, it's just a tool that will be, it'll help. It'll only help. How, how else would you create an economy on Mars? Well, I'm worried about getting to Mars first before I'm worried about yeah. creating an economy. Okay, I feel boomer. like we're getting ahead of ourselves there. <laughs> anyway, um, but again, I mean, I think, but back to Brandon's point, I mean, uh, Bitcoin as a world reserve currency or as a decentralized global monetary system does at least, at the very least, level the playing field for the average, for the little guy in it's a way think, that did not exist before. If you think about it too, since like the invention of the printing press, when you have this like 
large scale accessibility to this information that you didn't have before, you also have to have this greater trust in the entity that is controlling your government, right? Like you now have like a, another viewpoint, another perspective because of the information that you now have access to. You can form your own opinions versus just like what you're being told through the trickle down effect, uh, like domino effect of that information spreading. And now you have like uh, the, a much bigger picture of what's going on, not only in your own country, but also globally. So that trust, you have to have a lot more in order for whoever's in power to stay in power. And I think like with the ad, like the invent of uh, like even planes where we can go from like one continent to another and even like the internet, you see like there's so much information that globally we have access to now that like that trust that we have to have in the, you know, whatever like governmental authority we have in our own countries is massive. Right. And the and financial system. But it, it also, uh, going to the internet, though, it also kind of like, in a way, you know, like, so it minimizes some trust, but it also has to, it also aggravates it elsewhere because now you have to, uh, I mean, obviously you can fact check on the internet, but look at the advent of fake news and look at the advent. Fake news of, and also of like censorship and. Yeah. Um, Unite everyone under the same economic system and watch the violence amongst countries just diminish hopefully Hash, until, they start in, until they start <laughs> until, yeah, yeah, until, until they start invading each other to like destroy mining farms and things like that well uh, that i mean be, why would you want to destroy yeah. mining farms because you're making your currency more susceptible to attack yeah it would be uh economic or you're uh, giving yourself the ability to have control more hash rate than yeah in you you can't entity. go to mars you guys are until you see yourself why, as why are Earth. you going back to mars like what's why i don't what what is it with bitcoiners in mars not because in your lifetime <laughs> Because it's, well, it's be the, the logical Mars, so. uh, progression of life. So. It's, to, it's to go to Mars, conquer the world, and then live amongst the stars. I I I'd prefer our little rock here where I can actually breathe like, air. Like <laughs> this for is now, a, at least. I mean, this is clearly just a, a byproduct of like Bitcoin having so many freaking crazy possibilities. Besides just being able to send it to someone permissionlessly, and like this is just what it is. I mean, hot like, take: Bitcoin doesn't fix everything. And on that. I think we'll wrap up this podcast. Let's Thank, do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, you can find me, Colin Harper, on Twitter at As I Lay Hodling. And you can find the rest of these guys. I'm also on Twitter. It's just my last name. Well, uh, what's your last name? Yeah, bro? come on. Heiberg. Uh, also on Twitter at, at BitcoinCast. And uh, at Brandon underscore D underscore Green. I'll see you on the moon. You mean right. Mars? Thanks for listening, Cheers. guys. Cheers, fam. Tune in Cheers. next week for uh, the next episode. Stay Cheers, woke. y'all. Cheers. Roll Tide. No. No. No Roll Tide.